Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright here with my co-host Carrie Plitt and we are once again actually really happy to be back in the studio. It feels like we've been on the road for ages, doesn't it? It really does. Um, and the last time we did a straight minisode we were catching up about our summers, which is crazy to think about. Yeah, now it gets dark at 4pm. Oh my god, And I haven't seen the sun in weeks. I can't really bear it. <laughs> but apart from being clinically depressed because of the lack of sunshine, how are you? I'm fine. No, I'm <laughs> very happy to be here with you today. Oh, girl, me too. It's so good. Yeah, I can't believe we've rolled around to Minisode 8 already. So in case our listeners are new to the show, the format for these Minisodes between full shows is for the next half hour or so, we're going to first have an informal conversation about something book related and anything else that might come up surrounding that question. And then we are going to recommend some other cultural things that we've enjoyed lately that are not books. And there will be, of course, the usual musical interludes from Eddie, a phrase I can never say. It's a lot of it's a lot of like similar sounds. Usual musical interludes. It's quite it's quite nice. Also, a little announcement that our beautiful, sturdy, practical, environmentally friendly literary friction tote bags have arrived. Um, And as soon as we figured out the best way to sell them to you, they will be yours. And I'm sorry to say the C word, but put them on your Christmas lists and we would recommend filling them with excellent books before giving them to someone for some extra points. Yeah. If you want to slip us some cash that we could probably do that, too. I don't know how you would find us and slip. (laughs) Just do a handshake and put 20 quid in it. If you see Carrie or me on the street, come over and give us money. We would love that. We will give you a tote in response. We will give you a hug and we will give you a hug. I will not give you a hug. Octavia might give you a hug. (laughs) What Carrie is meant to say is that the the money that we make from selling these totes is going to help us keep literary friction going, make it even better, reach more listeners. So we would be incredibly grateful for your support yes and for now we will be back after a little music to answer the question what's a great book that you read because it was assigned to you that you actually loved sounds very scintillating (laughs) (laughs) it's going to be better than the question sounds i promise (laughs) Welcome back to Literary Friction, Minnesota 8. Carrie and I are back to get into this month's topic, which we were inspired to talk about by a question, a guy called Isaac Butler, who presents a podcast about Shakespeare on Slate called Lend Me Your Ears, which I haven't listened to, but it sounds all right, um, asked on Twitter, which was, <laughs> Carrie's cracking up. <laughs> a guy, a guy called Isaac Butler, don't know who he is. He sounds fine. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. I mean, it's true, it's how I feel. It's totally how I feel. Anyway, this guy called Isaac Butler tweeted he asked this question on twitter what's a great book that you read because it was assigned to you that you actually loved and we thought it was actually a pretty good question to give this guy Isaac Butler his due yeah I liked this partially because we can talk about what we read at school and university and that's always fun but also because I think there's been a lot of talk about the canon recently and what the canon can do and this is a way of approaching what we encounter from the canon and what it does for us and actually you know, obviously we need to decolonize the curriculum, but there are some great books that you come across that really inspire you for the rest of your lives. And it's good to talk about those books and and the books that make an impression and stay with you for years and years and years. 
Totally. And I don't know, do you think that maybe the fact of having to read books from the canon teaches you that it's worth persevering with a long or like traditional, seemingly kind of irrelevant novel when it gets a bit boring in places? Like, I, I definitely think you have to learn how to read certain kinds of books. And the translation from, or the transition, sorry, from The Babysitter's Club to Tess of the Durbervilles can be a bit alienating without some guidance. Yeah, totally. And also the role that teachers play in all of these things. Mm. Um, you know, even if they're not selecting the books, the way that they convey a love of literature and also how to read literature, how to think about literature, what it means, how it interacts with the culture, all of those things. It's really important. Yeah, super important. So what do you reckon? What were the books that first did it for you at school? Too many books, as you might have guessed. Um, I love being assigned books to read. You love assignments. I know. I love assignments. I like one of my sadnesses about adult life is that I'm not really assigned things anymore. It might be the reason I host a literary podcast because I'm forced to read books. I will set you assignments if you would like. Maybe, yeah. And then I can set you like a weekly task. Sure. <laughs> and we'll do a will second podcast about it. Yes, my I response. will. Oh okay. my God. This is feeding into my need for power really well. Yeah. Okay. Well, I this is feeding into my need to have be slightly dominated by someone telling me what to do. <laughs> anyway, um, I was an English major in college, so I think I'll stick to high school because otherwise I would be talking all day. But my clearest memories of reading and loving books assigned came to me from my junior in high school. That is the third year out of four for the non-Americans amongst our listeners. And I'm sure I've talked about this before, but I had this amazing teacher called um, Ms. Mrs. Thibodeau. Thibodeau. Oh, Ms. Thibodeau. <laughs> it was Ms. Thibodeau. She was my first Ms. teacher, I think, as well, which was very inspiring. She had this reputation for people dropping out of her class because she worked us so hard. She was obsessed with British and Irish literature. She was sort of witchy in this wonderful way. But I can remember so, 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 so clearly the succession of books that we read in that class, beginning with um, Seamus Heaney's translation of Beowulf. Oh which my God, was that book is amazing. A revelation. Um, so, so amazing. And such a, a book that's really stayed with me and also turned me on to Seamus Heaney's poetry, which was brilliant. Um, but what were the books that really stuck with me? I mean, nobody will be surprised to learn that To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf, which was a book we read that year, just totally blew my mind and inspired a lifelong love of Virginia Woolf, Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. I loved the passion of that novel and just a very short list of other books that I read in high school that that I really loved. Hamlet, Henry IV Part One. Shakespeare is great. Who knew? <laughs> I didn't until I read it in high school. Ms. Thibodeau knew. <laughs> the Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien, which was my first introduction to metafiction, which you know I love. Jane Eyre, The Poetry of Keats, Yeats, Emily Dickinson. One note I wanted to add, which was I got to college and realized just how white my curriculum had been. And I was really glad to be an English major and be able to read books like Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, which is an absolute masterpiece and I would recommend it to anyone. So I guess, yes, I love being assigned books and I love reading these books. Maybe I'm not the best person to answer this question. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> There's not a lot of conflict. I think it's amazing though that you have such clear memories of 
of that curriculum and of that particular teacher because that is 100% not my experience. But as I mean, we've established so many times we had very different experiences (laughs) of school and very different approaches to being at school and kind of receiving all that stuff. And the thing is, for me, I really struggle to remember which books came to me when. Um, And especially when it comes to school, I didn't do English A-level. I did art, history of art, Spanish and French, um, none of which had huge literature components, but were all subjects that led me to read around them. Can I just stop you right there and say something that completely baffles me about the English education system, which is that 16-year-olds have to specialize. It's insane to me. It is insane. It also means that we get to make really... We get get to make choices based on essentially like reacting against our parents. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And I would have chosen crazy things at that age. You know, I had no idea what I liked or was interested in. I had quite a strong idea. But I think the thing is, because the system is going to do that to you, it encourages you to figure that stuff out Mm. younger, which could be seen as a positive. But I think generally it's restrictive. And there is a I don't know what's going on in schools nowadays, actually. Like the International Baccalaureate is an alternative that is much more broad. I know my school was pissed off with me for narrowing as much as I did. Um, but I, I really I, I really didn't want to do science and I sucked at maths and I didn't want to do English for the lamest reason actually, because I discovered that they were gonna study Frankenstein, which I was really unimpressed by. And I don't, I don't remember why. I think it was that awful arrogance of sort of teenage idiocy. And I think I thought maybe it was a bit babyish. I just, I had kind of no context for this. Did Obviously. you think it was like Frankenstein with the square head? Yeah, probably. <laughs> I, I probably did. I also, I just, I, w- I just wasn't interested in it. And I think that was partly because my experience of English GCSE wasn't that good. And it wasn't my English teachers who were the most inspiring. So there were some incredible English teachers at my school, but I wasn't in their set. Um, and my, my teachers were fine. I don't want to teach a shame or blame. But really, my love of reading was sparked through my family. And because I had this really independent relationship with reading long before I got to GCSE level at school, I was not that impressed by the curriculum and I found it restrictive. I found that, you know, like my parents and my aunt Tina really encouraged me to read European literature and a lot of my reading before then had been of other cultures and I found I had no desire to sit and read books about the English class system. It made me feel depressed. Um, I didn't find it elevating or interesting, even though some of the books were ostensibly great and some of the writing was great. And some of the characters came and like lived inside my psyche. Like, I hate Jane Austen. But I think about some of her characters all the time. I meet Mrs. Bennett, sadly, all the time. I think of Emma a lot. Like, it's a, I have a funny relationship with mm. all that stuff. As always, much cooler than me. I don't think it's cooler. I was arrogant, for sure, you know. Have you read Frankenstein since then? Yeah, and it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a good book. It's a very good book. Um, and obviously, once I understood a bit more about the context of Frankenstein and the meta narratives that are happening within it and the political commentary and everything, obviously, that's why being educated about what you're reading by people who know more than you is a good thing, you know. But um, I was just very anti-establishment as a teenager and I had a, I had a reaction against being told what to do kind of across the board. But I do remember, I don't remember which teacher brought her to my attention but it was in English Sylvia Plath's poetry crossing my path and and electrifying electrifying me and my Spanish teacher got me into Federico García Lorca who I have loved forever Um, mainly his poetry more than his plays but you know he's a phenomenal writer and I do also remember studying Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck and that for me was a real like aha moment because it was the first American literature I remember really coming across that and The Great Gatsby, but there was something about Steinbeck's voice that triggered this like obsessive drive in me and I went and read all of his books. 
weirdly don't remember anything about any of their plots. <laughs> but I, I remember the effect they had on me. I remember reading The Grapes of Wrath. I think um, I was on a train between Prague and Berlin as a teenager and, and like sobbing, you know, really. I, I have a, such a clear memory of the sound of the train and the air coming in through the window and this big book in my hands and just weeping. But I couldn't tell you what it was about. It's an amazing book. Do you remember the final scene? No. It's in a barn. <gasps> And okay. it involves breastfeeding. Yes, barns coming back to yeah. me. Now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, 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 I remember it being a hugely evocative book. And the thing is, I wonder how it would feel to reread that book now. I don't know. University was a totally different kettle of fish, though. I did Hispanic studies, and so it was like the short stories of Borges and Julio Cortázar and poetry by uh, Luis Cernuda, who I ended up writing my master's thesis about. So that was this whole different thing I felt really it was much more queer it was much more open-ended it was still very white which is the thing that sucks um, and it was too heavily masculine looking back now but I think that's inevitable because of the the generation we are I really think curriculums are different now yeah I think so too and it's interesting I wonder how much I, I think you would have reacted against any curriculum but well I had good teachers which I feel very blessed about but because GCSEs you're teaching so clearly to a test it seems like there's a lot less choice about what you read and how you read it I think definitely in, in the curriculum that you will have went through yeah I think that's totally right and there's always you know what it's like in schools there are some kids who are also English GCSE is compulsory um, everyone has to do it so there are some kids in the class who are really literary literary minded and others who really hate it and the literary kids want to do extra work and think about philosophical questions and the other kids are like is this on the test and that's just a that's just a fact of being mm. at school but it it's it's a funny one I think I mean and I think this is the thing about about the power that teachers have. It really depends what's going on at home for children. And if children have families that are reading, reading families who support liter literature as like a, a thing, you know, for me as a school kid, I, I was an only child, so I read all the time. It was a really big part of my life because what else was there? Do you know what I mean? What else was there to do? Um, Whereas if you're a kid who doesn't have a family who particularly value reading or don't have time to read because they're working to the knuckle all the time and all that, then your teachers have this incredible burden of responsibility, mm. I guess, to to potentially like turn you on or turn you off, right? Reading and writing. I don't yeah, know. totally. It's true. I think we were both lucky to come into school already as readers, and the books that I was turned on to were books that I might have encountered on my own anyway. Right. Yeah, and that actually makes me think about another question that was asked on Twitter, which was a sort of an extension of this question: Were there any great books that you really were nervous to read or didn't think you'd like but because they were assigned to you you ended up loving them I think this gets back actually to that question of long books um, and how being assigned a book can be a great reason to tackle something that otherwise you just wouldn't have the time or patience for I certainly had that with a lot of books Middlemarch which I talk about all the time I never would have read that book if it wasn't assigned to me in college I only made it through the first two volumes of uh, remembrance of things past, but I wouldn't have read any of them if they hadn't been assigned to me. So I'm really glad for that experience. And I love a reason to have to read something. Um, in terms of that question more generally, I'm, I'm so happy to have discovered William Faulkner in high school. 
And I remember that the book that was assigned to us was The Sound and the Fury, which is considered by many a very difficult book, partially because it starts out in this really fragmented voice of one of the brothers, Benji, who has learning disabilities. And it's really hard to follow. But I persevered partially because I was signed to it and I'm a good girl teacher's that. <laughs> but I'm so glad I did and it and it is it eventually I wrote my master's dissertation about Faulkner and have read many many of his books and love his writing dearly and um and I think that's one of the things that school and assignments and the quote unquote canon can inspire is it it forces you to grapple with things that are difficult. Yeah, definitely. I think it can also laden you with burdens that are horrendous though <laughs> I oh mean, yeah for me that was this is more about more again about university but um Cervantes Don Quixote it's just not my jam I don't like it and when you study Spanish obviously it's this kind of monolith that it's hard to step sideways around and also I was forced to read a bunch of incredibly bad plays by a Spanish writer called Lope de Vega who um again writing at a similar time as Cervantes and there was one guy in the department who was determined to argue that Lope de Vega was as good as Shakespeare and frankly it was a completely bankrupt position it was a, an example of an academic who has one trick up his sleeve and is going to bang on and that bang on that drum until the cows come home even if they are dead and bleeding from the eyes like it was it was extraordinary and and you know, when you look at the the control that certain people can have over shaping curriculums and you think, so I was reading those instead of reading the work of, I don't know, like women writers of color from the Spanish speaking Caribbean. Like what, what, what was the point? Right. Totally. Totally. Um, and I think we have to end on a note of criticism, don't we? Because, yes, we do. Yeah, <laughs> because we ultimately that, the, you know, one of the great things that's happened in the last even five years is how radically people have been criticizing curriculums and the kind of values that they put forth and the kind of writers they elevate while others they suppress. Yeah, um, and the thing is, I think that there's so much scope to have both of those things alongside one another and that's what a really electrifying curriculum can do. It can be like, okay, let's read one play by Lope de Vega who some people hold up as this guy who's brilliant, have an opinion, but then look at where the Spanish language in literature has ended up and bring someone who's more forward-facing and then you can have an interesting contrast between the two. But the problem is when people are put forward to you as the one example or, you know, the the kind of hallowed example of a particular language's literary culture. Yeah, totally. And I think it's also the way these things are taught, getting back to that point I made earlier. I mean, I just viscerally remember the experience of having to read The Mayor of Casterbridge by Thomas Hardy the summer before my freshman year in high school. It was our assigned summer reading. And having to not only read that book, which... It's dull. Yeah. It is Everyone a dull I book. I know who had to study it hated it. I did, it wasn't in my, I well, didn't I mean, to do it. Why did they assign that to 14 year olds? Anyway, putting that aside, not only did we have to read it, we had to answer questions after every chapter about what had happened in the plot in the book. And if there's a way to kill a love of reading, it's making people answer like asinine questions about why the mayor of Casterbridge had, you know, eaten some porridge on a, <laughs> on a particular morning you know it was just so dumb and it made me really angry and not that you know I was smart enough at the time to know that it was a terrible strategy for teaching books and I really about rebelled well I didn't rebel at all because I read it and answered all the questions <laughs> but I rebelled in my mind um, and, and similarly I remember in middle school reading speaking of John Steinbeck The Pearl which is this novella about a pearl diver and we had to come up with a list of 
I think it was something like 30 symbols from the novella and what they all meant. And it's like, again, that's not, of course, symbolism is important in books, but what a way to completely misread what reading is. Yeah. And what fiction is. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's hard to teach the skills of analysis, but there are ways to do it that are going to engage your young audience more than others, right? And, and teachers have a really hard job of, of trying to engage a class full of anything between 30 and 50 students, right? You're not going to capture the attention of every single one all the time. But I think that theories around pedagogy have moved on so much since we were at school. And I think that I know for me anyway, there were vestiges of the old guard in my education, um, my very traditional education that, uh, that did not help, that did not help. Yeah. 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 And I also think about what if I revisited some of the books that I didn't like now, I'm sure I'd have a really different response. I mean, I'm very ashamed to say that I thought The Awakening by Kate Chopin, Chopin, I'm, she's American, so who knows, was total drivel. And it's this great feminist novel. And I'm sure it was because at the time I thought feminism was over because men and women were equal, <laughs> you know, and now I, and oh, now I have come Carrie. to my senses, obviously. <laughs> and I'm sure I would read a lot more into that novel. Yeah, I, I'm sure that there are things that I dismissed out of hand. I mean, Frankenstein being one of them, right, that I would reevaluate. But I also, I still think, for example, when we were at school, narrative, I hate the term narrative nonfiction, but um, none of those kinds of books were on the curriculum or the syllabus. And I think that actually that's a really, that is a really direct and interesting way to engage mm. a variety of readers with those kinds of voices um, that are responding to the now and the contemporary in a way that, you know, you, you can bring people in through that window and then be like, also the mayor of Casterbridge. <laughs> I don't know. Right? Or just, just, just burn that one. Check yeah, it just out. burn that one. Put it on the bonfire along with the effigy of the mayor of Casterbridge. Yeah. Which I, I had to answer questions about. Oh, God. Should we just assign the curriculum? Yeah, babe. We know everything there is to know about teaching, obviously. I would actually just like to say a shout out to all the English teachers that may or may not be listening. Yes. Your job is so hard. We love you. We have a huge amount of respect for you, my God, and and truly. But I think that um, it's also fair to criticise the curriculums of the past, you know? I mean, yes. definitely don't let 14-year-old girls design your curriculum. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I'd been in charge of that, it would have been a mega shit show. But yeah. Any conclusions? Concluding remarks, Carrie Plitt? Um, books are great. <laughs> <laughs> I love them. Books are great. As usual, Carrie and I are back to give you recommendations of some stuff that we've done or watched or listened to that is not reading, um, but that has inspired us or stimulated us or brought us joy. So Carrie, you're up first. What have you done lately that has thrilled you? So my main recommendation this mini-sode is going to be the documentary Minding the Gap, which I watched on the plane when I was coming back from America. Have you heard of this? No. God, it is amazing. And I think you would really like it. It it got a lot. I think it was maybe shortlisted for best documentary feature at the Oscars. And, and it got quite a lot of buzz in the US, but not many people in the UK have heard of it. And I would really, really, really recommend that you check it out. Um, it is made by Bing Liu about two of his other high school friends. They all grow up in um, Rockford, Illinois, which is a sort of struggling Rust Belt town where there aren't a lot of options 
and they are all skateboarders. And this is ostensibly a film about skateboarding. And there are some beautiful shots of them just, you know, riding down the street. He's literally on the skateboard filming them as they ride through the streets of Rockford, but also do these amazing tricks. And it's just really beautifully shot in that way. But what it is really about is masculinity, race, inequality, and most meaningfully about violence and how it's passed down through generations, especially by men. And it's incredibly moving. And the way that the film sort of reveals that that is its ultimate topic is devastating and beautiful and just incredibly moving. He starts it when he's a teenager and he makes it about his friends and he really questions his friends in this way that is sad and we have to watch them grow up and make different choices. And I just, I I think it's on iPlayer right now and if you can see it, please do because it's a a beautiful documentary. It sounds incredible. Also skateboarding is one of those skills that never ceases to floor me. I had a go when I was young and I sucked and it was impossible. Yeah. Just whenever you see someone really nailing it, it's it's so exhilarating. Yeah, it's amazing. And also it's one of those things that I always think I'm going to be good at. And then I get on a skateboard and I can barely (laughs) move on it. Just also very quickly... Like everyone else, I've started watching Succession, which I'm is so, so good. To watch it. You're li- I mean, obviously, you're like that 115th person who's told me it's, yeah, it's so good. Yeah, it is really good. The writing is so sharp. The plot is genuinely thrilling. And I think it manages to be real satire. It's not just about being rich and how great that is. But it also has this weird emotional core, even though everyone in it is sort of terrible. And I don't know. I don't quite understand how it manages to pull that off. But it really does. And I just finished the first season, which has this amazing finale. And I can't wait to watch the second season. I feel like I've got some really good watching stored up for the rest of the winter. I know. I feel that way, too. Yeah. I can't wait to watch the new BoJack Horseman as well. Oh, I never which watched is that. Meant to is be good. Okay. Yeah, it's incredible. Okay. Also, his Dark Materials, I just watched the first episode and it's so How good. How was it? Is it, it was, good? It was actually good. Okay. Yeah. I, I was nervous, yeah. you know? It feels like kind of hallowed territory. I know. I was very nervous, but it, I... I think it is living up to the greatness of the books or at least close enough that it is something I want to engage with rather than discard immediately like the movie. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) I just got a little thrill. Well, for me, it's uh, top of the list recently actually has been a podcast, Esther Perel's podcast, Where Should We Begin? Yes. Yeah. Which I know you love. And um, if you haven't listened to it yet, what are you doing? Um, it's really, uh, it's it's back for another season, basically, which is why it's come, come around again. If you're not familiar with it, Perel is a therapist who specializes in relationships. And each episode is a one-off session with a couple struggling with a particular issue. And this season is uh, shaped around um, kind of the trajectory of a relationship. So the first episode, they're very new. The second episode, they've been together for a while and then through into old age and the different problems that come up as a relationship progresses. Um which is just a really nice way to shape a season, I think. And um, yeah, it's it's as ever tender, illuminating, thought provoking, um, sometimes quite challenging. And I guess it's it's partly great because it fulfills that nosy curiosity I think we all have about other people's relationships. Totally. But I'm also yet to listen to an episode that doesn't teach me something. And, you know, it's not always teaching you things about 
uh, romance actually it's just human connection and human relationships in general and motivation for certain behaviors and I find her an incredibly thoughtful obviously slightly unorthodox because it's it's not the same as as straight psychodynamic therapy but it's fascinating and if you're interested in therapeutic proce- process in any way as well it's a great window yeah. into it it's also just so compassionate yeah super compassionate which feels important I agree totally yeah, really important. She's bright and and uh, her belief that the erotic infuses our life and isn't just about sex, but it's actually just it's it's actually about connection and relational dynamics is a really beautiful way of looking at the world, I think. Um, and one that I can kind of relate to. Such a surprise coming from you, <laughs> Ms. Octavia Bright. <laughs> Doctor. <laughs> I said it just to provoke you. (laughs) I'm going to set you the mayor of Casterbridge as homework. (laughs) Um, Anyway, moving on, because my my masochistic friend over here is grinning at me. The other thing that I've been really adoring recently is Pose, which is just a fabulous thing that's also back for a second season on BBC iPlayer at the moment, Um, although I'm still actually watching the first. It is the perfect mix of joy and drama. I literally laugh out loud and also weep profusely at every single episode. It's about the African-American and Latino LGBTQ ballroom scene in New York in the 80s and early 90s. Um, If you've seen the film Paris is Burning, it's you know, exactly that kind of territory. But it's actually engaging with some of the things that were problematic about that documentary. And some of the people who were originally in that scene in the 80s have consulted on this. It's got Billy Porter in it as one of the main characters. It's exquisite. It's Ryan Murphy, who is a powerhouse of truly diverse casting. And I don't love all of his work, but I always love what he's trying to do. Um, It's really excoriating about the rise of the yuppie, i.e. Trump, um, class James Vanderbeek Van shows up oh, great. as this amazing disgusting corporate skin sack of human slime essentially and um, it's a pretty unflinching look also at the impact of the AIDS epidemic on the on the communities that it's um, following but it's also this incredibly glorious celebration of ball culture of dance of the power of alternative queer families of masquerade and gender and really finding your true path and celebrating yourself for who you are um, and things that it's easy to write off as corny, but we really shouldn't because they're truly important, you know, mm-hmm. and looking at them with this kind of earnestness is, I think, incredibly vital, especially at the moment. Um, also, unsurprisingly, it has an un- absolutely incredible soundtrack and you can find a playlist on Spotify of all the tracks, which I have been listening to completely obsessively. Um, so, yeah. And then this is just this is a, this is just a straight up boast. But I'm going to see Lizzo tonight, and I'm losing my mind with excitement. <laughs> so jealous. I'm 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 jealous of myself. This is a plan that uh, my boyfriend and I made a long time ago, and I can't believe we took such good care of our future selves. That's not really in my usual remit, and I'm very pleased with myself. You're growing. You're breaking out of your cycles. That's right. I'm so proud of you. (laughs) Psychological work. That's right. Esther Perel would be proud. That's all the time we have for today. Big thanks to Paula and Josh at NTS and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Until then, I'm Octavia Bright with Carrie Plitt and this has been Literary Friction. Literary Friction.